This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, Behind the Shield 10, for a one-time purchase. 
Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Joe Monasteri. Now, Joe has an incredible life story, as you will hear. So we discuss a host of topics from traveling and working with the military through to her work with indigenous tribes and herbal medicine. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 700 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Joe Monasteri. Enjoy. Well, Joe, I want to start by saying, firstly, thank you for a great conversation the other day. We discussed doing this podcast today. I have to say, prior to this recording, there's some people have been on the show that other people have called probably the world's most interesting man. Based on your resume, I would say that I could argue that you definitely be up there and world's most interesting woman. So I want to welcome you to the Behind the Shield podcast today. Thank you so much, James. So where geographically are we finding you today? You're finding me in Wichita Falls, Texas today. Brilliant. So I would love to start at the very beginning. You've got such an incredible kind of timeline. I want to make sure that we jump in immediately. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. I was born in what is often called the armpit of New Jersey. I was born in Camden County in Woodbury, New Jersey. And I'm the eldest of six sibling, uh, six living children. Um, I have one sister and four younger brothers. We were all born in different places, to give you an idea. For example, I was born in New Jersey. My next brother was my brother closest in age to me. I won't use their names because we have a very unique last name. And understandably, with all the different work we all do, we want to remain private. So it's no not problem. that it's not that I'm calling him brother number one, brother number two, but for their privacy, I, I'm not saying their names. Um, so brother number one, I'll be very non-PC here. And as my friends say, it's uh, my Irish twin. Um, he was born in Kentucky. My sister was born in California. My brother number two was born in Canada. My brother number three was born in New York. And my youngest brother was born in Texas. That gives you an idea. My father was a first generation. I'm sorry. My father was born in Italy. So I'm a first generation Italian-American on both sides, Italian-American. Um, and uh, he came to the United States after his father. There's some controversy over exactly how his father died. My grandmother, his mother, told me the real story shortly before she lost her memory towards the very end of her life. She had worked, um, she was born in Harlem, New York, 
my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, Gertrude Inez Zanitti, married, um, some people may think this is shocking, but it was often done in Sardinian and Sicilian families, and that side of the families from both Sardo, are both Sardos and Sardinians and Sicilians. And so uh, she married her cousin, and he was Giovanni or John Patti. Um, the reason I also bring this up is I was named for him in Italian. <laughs> my name is not Giovanni, which is uh, Italian for Joanne. My, my name is actually Giovannina, which means little John. Um, I was the first grandchild on both sides of the family. My mother's family, and my, so my father's family is from Sicily, Sardinia, although he was born in Rome. And um, they came, my, it's, I'm sorry to go back and forth here, but it is important. My grandmother and uh, the Zanitti family, they were in Harlem, New York. They had come over from their father. Um, he had an import-export business from Italy to New York in the early 1900s. Um, she, my grandmother finished Hunter High School at 16, I believe, and went on to do her master's in physics. You have to understand this is the 1920s. And um, did was doing her PhD in Italy and married to her cousin, my real grandfather, um, who was working first as a police in the diplomatic corps, like policing diplomats, I guess. And then I understand he became a lawyer. Um, and she was working with Enrico Fermi uh, in nuclear physics during the early 1930s in Italy. And both my grandparents, my biological grandparents, were anti-fascisti during the rise of Mussolini. So um, there was some controversy on what happened to my grandfather. The story was he, he came back coughing one day and had pneumonia and died at 28 years old. My grandmother told me a different story later on in life, and I believe this is the true story, is that... Um, they were anti-fascist during the rise of Mussolini. He was brought in for questioning by the black shirts. And uh, if you've ever been around or been yourself uh, interrogated for hours and hours and tortured, you know that you don't have a voice left and you're coughing all the time. He was allowed to come home. He died at home after that interrogation. And they were forcing my grandmother to work for them. That's that was what she was supposed to do after his death. But she said, please, um, we're not from here. I need to bring my husband's body down to Sicily to bury him. And uh, at least somebody had some heart, I suppose, of the fascistes. So they allowed her to go by train with my father, who was three and a half, I think, at the time, and his older sister, my Aunt Loredell, passed on, of course, um, who was, I think, five and a half at the time, down to Sicily. My grandmother said she she could not make any of the arrangements because she was making an arrangement with the sanction of my family, that side of the family, to go to America in a boat and not go back and work for them. So she never got to go to her own husband's funeral, but she sent my aunt her, her daughter, who was only five at the time. And it was a big thing because my aunt told me she was sort of forced to kiss the dead body because my grandmother was not there. 
and uh, it sort of made a terrible impression on her early in life. Anyway, um, so that's that side of the family. Uh, my they came to back to New York. My grandmother, as a widow, with her two children, as a physicist who had worked with Enrico Fermi, who had her PhD. She could not get a job as an Italian during the beginning, what was beginnings of World War II, but she spoke four languages. She spoke uh, Italian, English, French, and Latin. And I believe she may even have spoken a little German. And um, so she got a job as a high school teacher in Brooklyn schools. Um, and then later married the only grandfather I ever knew, wonderful man, Peter Pinot Munisteri, also from Sicily originally. Um, people sort of in the neighborhoods that I've been in in Brooklyn in those areas earlier on in my life, they'd sort of shudder. And my grandfather was a little bit proud of it. I think he, was, he certainly, we were a very anti-mafia family. I want to say that from the beginning. But, um, you know, they say, where's your grandfather from? He said, Aracamuto. And they go, oh, oh, because it was a center of uh, La Cosa Nostra in those days. So, um, yeah, so they came to America, my father, very young, and, and uh, my grandmother married um, the grandfather I, I knew. They were both teachers. That's how they met, teaching in Bay Ridge High School, I believe, or one of the Brooklyn high schools. And uh, that, that was during World War II. Um, I'll just say a little bit about my mother's side of the family, because that's also important. My mother was born in the United States, but her father is from uh, a little town called Formicola in Naples. So they're Napolitano. And you have to understand that the Italians, uh, even though Italy was united by Garibaldi, you know, many years ago, they're still all like little city-states in many ways, if you know Italy. They even have different dialects, different food, a lot of different cultures. I mean, they have the official Italian language, but then there's dialects all over. So my grandfather was, uh, was from Naples, essentially. He married my grandmother. People might think it's actually shocking right now, but it was during the Depression. She was 15 when she got engaged. He was 29, I believe. He had been in the Italian Navy in World War I, when that was the allies with the United States, and uh, had been injured from a torpedo. He was a mechanic on the ships. We sort of joke. I'm not really sure if this is true. And one of my brothers, if he hears it, is probably going to, you know, chastise me if I don't get exactly right. But we used to joke about that he had metal in his body. He used to say he had metal in his body. He had a very heavy Italian accent. Uh, when he would talk to us on the phone, because I was the first grandchild, but I was a girl. You have to understand that thinking. So he was so happy to have four grandsons because he had had three daughters. So he he would call on the phone when we were in Texas. He'd say, child, Joanna, let me talk it to the boys. <laughs> so he was a mechanic, decorated for his service in the Italian Navy, had metal in his body that we joked came from another Italian ship that accidentally set off their torpedo in port. <laughs> I'm pretty, sure, I'm pretty sure that story is at least partly true. Um, very formidable man to me, over six foot, and um, didn't have too much interest 
except for gardening. He would teach me gardening. But uh, he was very stern sort of guy and had married my my grandmother, as I say, she was 15, she was engaged, got married as soon as she was 16, had my mother at 16, never finished high school, never learned how to drive. One of my greatest supporters for you must get an education. So, uh, and they spoke Italian at home, uh, different Italian, Neapolitan Italian. And in my father's household, when you go to my grandparents' house, they would be speaking Italian, French. I learned French from them more than from my teachers because they were always speaking. They made language so much fun. Um, and then when they didn't want us to really understand, they spoke uh, Sicilian, la lingua omerta, the language of secrets. <laughs> um, that's a little bit about my family background. What I can say about my my mother is deceased, but my father is still alive, 92. And, uh, you know, tough coming to the United States at that time. Um, went to public schools in Brooklyn and then went, at that time, I believe they had like streaming, like charter schools, sort of. Uh, so he went to Brooklyn Tech. He was always uh, interested in math, became an engineer. He was a fantastic musician, even uh, as a child. And I believe he took private lessons at Juilliard during those days in the, must have been the 40s. And he went to Yale University. I mean, it's a real American self-made man story. Uh, and uh, first worked, married my mother. She went to Albertus Magnus, also first generation to go to college in that family. Uh, they met in college. And in those days, that kind of in the 50s, uh, got married, had me right away. That was during the Korean War. Um, both my my mother's sisters married military men. Uh, my Aunt Lucille married, uh, well, then actually, they both married Navy. <laughs> um, my father's mother, my father's sister married uh, Army, my Uncle Arthur Smith, still alive from the Battle of the Bulge. He's in his late 90s. Uh, so a lot of military around, a lot of law enforcement around when I was growing up. My my uncle Arthur, my father's younger brother, also deceased, um, became a lawyer. But when growing up, there were just a lot of a lot of his friends who became police, New York police, New York one New York detective. So I I grew up around that uh, very hardworking ethic, uh, very you do everything yourself. Nobody hands you anything. Um, learning all the neighborhoods. We moved 13 times before I was 11, and that's in three different countries and all different schools. And you had to case a place as soon as you got there because there was no um, PC anti-bullying in those days. You grew up in England, correct? I did, yes. All right. So when we moved to England for a couple of years while my father was working in India. You have to remember there's no Skype, no internet in those days for communications with your parents if they're gone. My, my father was gone a lot. He was working very hard. He moved up. He started at Bechtel Corporation and then um, he worked uh, Brown and Root for a very long time here in Texas. That's why I moved to Texas. But 
if I'm going on too long, just stop me. Uh, no, you're good. Um, yeah, so we moved to England when I was seven. And my brother, closer to an age to me, we were just inseparable. Um, he was six. I was seven and a half, six. And uh, the company, I guess, paid for us to go to a private school in Finchley. We first lived in London in a flat underground because I couldn't remember looking up to see the street. If you know one of those underground flats. Yeah, yeah, like a basement flat. Right. Yeah, and not so far. I mean, it probably was pretty far. We were used to – my dad took us to the track as soon as we could walk and put a violin in our hands as soon as we could hold it. There, he he had all sorts of ideas, um, which were, you know, there were some problems with them. But by and large, I can look back and go, okay, I'm glad they made us do all these things um, in terms of skills. So uh, I think he read Cheaper by the Dozen. It was a book about how to raise 12 kids. I think in his mind, he he says it's a good thing that he didn't want a football team just stopped at a basketball team. Um, so he would, uh, yeah, have, and he was an engineer, so he would make all these chore charts and do all these things that we were supposed to do. Um, and my mother was always, you know, idle hands are work of the devil. So we were always, you could not not be busy. You could not be seen to not be doing something in our family. Um, and that's continued through my life, I suppose, and for all of us, we're all, I would say we're all known as workaholics. Um, yeah, so that's a little of my family background. My mother was uh, working inside the home in those days, you know, homemaker. And then afterwards, at the very end of last 30 years of her life, she taught herself pretty much computers and was an administrative assistant at Rice University in the English department and then had her own business editing academic books, which I just think is so boring and detailed work, but it was actually suited for her personality at the end of her life. She was very, um, she was able to be very meticulous and learn those machines. Well, that's amazing. I mean, such a, you know, diverse set of characters in, in your lineage, as it were. You mentioned about moving multiple times when you were still young. And this is a, key, a theme for some people that come on the show. Now, with this, you know, incredible journey you've been on, this understanding of spirituality and mental health, when you look back at your earlier upbringing, what were the pros of that kind of dynamic, and what would you consider some of the cons now? Definitely the pros, especially in those days, is you had to case a place very fast. I mean, there was no uh, – you had to settle a score outside on the playground. You can just imagine in England – in the early 60s, uh, we were the Yanks, and we were the Yanks WAPs. I can say it because I'm Italian. You know, uh, we you, nobody minced words in those days, right? We were the greasy WAPs. So um, I, my brother certainly had to fight almost every day. We're talking about at six years old, even before then in other schools too. Um, and he would call me sometimes from across the playground. I'll, I'll just say, give you one example. <laughs> It was a Catholic school. It's still in existence. It was an excellent school academically, I will say, St. Michael's Convent School. 
And also we had to wear all these uniform things, which was very different than coming from American or Canadian schools. Had to wear like ties and some a sash that went around your, your waist. And when we were getting fitted for uniforms, they said to my mother, oh, she has to get a girdle. I was seven, right? And my, oh my, mother, said, my mother said, what? <laughs> you know, because that's what they called it in those days. Um, anyway, you had, you, know, and you had summer uniforms and winter uniforms. And you had to wear hats and you had to wear gloves at certain occasions. It was very formal. And at any rate, um, and we had nuns teaching us who, of course, they didn't have to pay because they were part of the church. So they... Some of the nuns were all right, and then some of the nuns were had power issues. Let's put it that way. And there was this one nun, oh, man, she just really hated Yanks, I think. Uh, any excuse. And my brother was in a fight with some, some other, by the way, my brother became a Marine. <laughs> my brother was in a fight with, with someone on the playground. And I had seen it, and it was the other boy's fault. He had started it. and But this nun came over and you know, in those days, they would just pull them by the ears, box it by the ears, was pulling my brother. She was tall, too, and sort of beating him around the head. And my brother was yelling to me across the the playground, you know, Joanne, come on, come on. <laughs> and it's, we still had American accents at that point. We quickly became very good at adopting different accents in life. Uh, anyway. I ran across and I jumped on this nun's back. That's the only thing I could think of. I think I was two and a half feet tall, but I, I jumped on her back. You stop beating up my brother. As soon as I jumped on her back, I knew I was in trouble. Why? Because I felt this back brace she had. In these old in old days, they used to put the braces. They were like metal braces and held your chin. And I realized when I jumped on that she had one of these braces. And that's why she had that thing in front on her chin. And I thought, Oh, I'm really going to be in trouble now. <laughs> oh. uh, anyway, we were taken to the head mistress's office, mother superior, sat down. They called my mother. My mother came in. We're sitting there, of course, very sheepish. And she's looking furiously at us as she goes by. And then as she comes out, she takes us and says, do you know what you've just done? You have beaten up the wife of Christ. <laughs> <laughs> My brother's six, I'm seven, the wife of Christ. Why didn't you tell us if we just had known, you know? And I really, at that time, I thought, okay, that's it. You know, there, I, I've gone down as far as I can go. You know, she said, you see that wedding ring on her finger? She is married to Christ. And then, of course, we got in a lot of trouble. Um, but for years after, I thought, there's just no hope for me. I mean, I, I was saying prayers to my light in the dark, Hail Marys and everything in the closet, anything I could do, because I thought, at seven years old, I've just done one of the worst things you could do, right? Anyway, that's. then later on, I found out that all the nuns have this wedding ring. And that was another revelation, right? Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> interesting really interesting it's, it's a shame because i've 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 heard you know stories of of convent schools and you know the same with um you know with monks and and sometimes it's crazy because you hear these stories of kindness and compassion yet some of these people of the cloth 
they they clearly didn't get that memo and there were some pretty tyrannical people in some of these schools absolutely i will say though i've been it's helped me in my uh, work in education because i've been in all types of schools sometimes we went to private schools most of the time we went to public schools sometimes we went to rather big urban schools sometimes suburban schools i've worked in remote schools so that really helped me and i would say my brother too and when he went into international business after uh, the marine corps uh, helps you adapt and gives you a certain amount of empathy for different kinds of situations that you wouldn't be in if you had just gone to one we used to we used to dream about just being in one place. And also my father was very strict about what you carried, uh, which with our own children, we were, and my brother and I have discussed this quite a bit different. I mean, we were only allowed to have like one little backpack. And if you left something somewhere, you couldn't go back and get it. You know, even if you're four years old and left your favorite Teddy, that's it. You didn't pick it up. So, um, yeah, you learn about adapting and casing a place and who not, I mean, not only the neighborhoods we lived in as well, he's like, who not to piss off and um, and and how also how to stand your ground because in many of those situations, if you did not fight back, you were going to have a much harder time the whole time you were there. And I was always with, with what they called a peanut. I was always very little and skinny. And so right away, my father and my uncle said, oh, yeah, no way, you're going to fight. You better learn how to run. <laughs> so I got taken to the track as soon as I was two, three, got put in the Junior Olympics in different places. And sports, we always had to be in sports. We had to speak another language. We had to, we had to play at least one other musical instrument. You can imagine our house when there's the six kids, you know, um, violins. One of my brothers played the drums. Two of my brothers played the saxophone, but we're all practicing, right? We're not professionals. <laughs> um, I think it drove my mother out of the house. Uh, and if if we just had one friend over, that's 12 kids in the house at least. So we always had to be outside. And that's helped in life. The cons would be, uh, if I didn't have a large extended family growing up, which I did growing up, we had... I mean, my grandfather was, I think, the eldest of 12 living children. And everybody had a fair amount of children. In those days, having six children was not considered a large family. That was just a good-sized family. Many of my friends in Texas, especially uh, New York, too, um, but I remember the Forrestals, they had 11 children. Uh, the twins were in my, you know, sometimes they would have two sets of twins in a family the Kellys, other people, nine, 10, that was a good, that was a big family. And and when I grew up in parts of New York and in Canada, the multiculturalism of those neighborhoods, I mean, people talk about that we're not diverse enough. For heaven's sakes, no, in those days, I can tell you, I can still remember uh, when we lived in White Plains for a little while, next door with the Kledzinskis, Polish, Across the street, the Cohens, Russian Jews. Uh, diagonal across the street, uh, French from Paris. He had a beauty salon in New York and used to commute. Uh, the the Shaws, the Wieners. The I mean, we had 
the Ganerises. We had every sort of nationality in those neighborhoods. And almost all of those parents would say to the kids after school, get out of the house and don't come back until dinner time." And so we just had a good kind of mob of kids that we would just play all these games. We played army for years. I mean, years at one place. We had cryptology. <laughs> you know, if you look back, we had our we had our own codes. All of us had most of us elder in the family had to take care of the younger ones. So my uh, third brother down, who was born when I was nine, he was like my papoose. I carried him everywhere, and before he could crawl or walk, he was the hostage <laughs> in our army games. Um, uh, you know. Parents didn't worry about like you falling in a river or something like that. You you did, but you wouldn't tell them. You didn't have a cell phone, thank God. And so you'd have to figure out a way how to get out of it. And you would be in trouble. My parents had this. It, this part was not fair. This is a con. They had this philosophy of extreme responsibility. You know, Jocko Willink has made very... Uh, famous, the extreme uh, ownership thing. Well, decades before, my father had extreme responsibility. My mother was the enforcer. Meant whoever was the oldest was responsible, <laughs> no matter what they did. Um, and it's, of course, the younger ones figure it out pretty quickly. Oh, we can go get away with a lot because Joanne's going to get blamed, right? So you were always... At least I was, and to an extent my brother, but mostly I was in charge when it was babysitting and things like that, is you had to figure out a way to prevent things from happening as much as possible. Um, that was the pro, but the con was that I just got beat, and in those days, yeah, I was beat, physically beat, um, for uh, something you didn't do. And also... There was a very strong ethic, not just in our family as part of the Italian ethic, but in many, many families, uh, first-generation immigrant, the Irish families, the Greek families, Polish families, you do not tell on someone in your family or your group. So even if you didn't do it, you don't, you don't be the one to tell. Now, speaking of fighting, tell me about your journey into judo, because I know that at that time, that wasn't, you know, martial arts weren't huge. I mean, there were definitely some movies coming out around that era. But as far as people actually immersing and competing, that was a little bit more rare. So how did you find judo and what level did you end up at? Oh, well, I should say, okay, so I graduated from uh, one thing that my my relatives told me before we moved to Texas, because I, I knew it was going to be hard in Texas, and it, it was for lots of reasons. Um, they thought we were Mexican, which was not a good thing to be in the 60s in Texas, in Houston. Um, so, you know, the fighting and everything continued, <laughs> except at a much more accelerated level. Um, and they could whoop you in those days. It was legal. You know, you, uh, you got SWAT. And if you didn't know physics and you had a choice of the SWAT sticks, if you got caught talking or something, you would probably choose the SWAT stick that had holes in it, thinking that it was not going to hurt as much. But if you know physics, you know, if they take a good swing at you with the holes in that swat stick, it's, it's going to hurt more. Um, early on, I realized I wasn't going to be the best in 
music or sports. I w- I did it. I competed. I went to the Junior Olympics and all that. But that wasn't going to be my ticket out of Texas. Um, I had a teacher in seventh grade in Texas who, even though I had a terrible stutter from all the trauma and other things, she convinced my parents it was free in those days to give me um, speech lessons. And then she encouraged me to tell stories. And then my other teacher enrolled me in a public speaking contest. I was absolutely terrified, but I ended up doing all right. The first story I told was Ricky Tiki Tavi from Richard Kipling. Anyway, fast forward, um, I was on the debate team at Memorial Senior High School in Houston. We won just about everything. We were national champions in the for years. And I won state in uh, student congress and then um, went to nationals at Stanford University that year um, as a high schooler. So, And you have to understand there weren't very many females at all. <laughs> uh, I went to nationals in Washington, D.C. when I was 16 for 3A CYO, Catholic Youth Organization. And I will just say this because it's pertinent. The topic was racism. <laughs> and that was in 1969. Um, I didn't win, but I got third place. That That's when I was first ap- approached by a recruiter when I look back. Yeah, recruiting for different organizations and universities and projects. You don't know it at the time. I won Model United Nations, so I went to New York. And when I was at Stanford, uh, some people came and approached me there. And uh, so that's how I got to university. I did not go right away to Georgetown University. My parents wouldn't let me. They thought it was too far to go to Washington, too expensive because I only had a partial, con- um, at that time, partial scholarship. And they also wanted me to marry this local Texan guy, um, which is a good thing I didn't. <laughs> That's a whole other story. Anyway, first year I went to Oglethorpe University where I met a fantastic woman. She's deceased now. She, uh, Valerie Mather Wainwright. She was uh, my roommate for a while. Roommates, again, who your roommates are, who you meet, very important. My roommate and suite mate at Oglethorpe University in Georgia in 1971, both of them had one parent, or at least one parent, I think one had both her parents and one had one, who were never found. They died in the Bermuda Triangle. Talk about wild things, right? <laughs> right? So already we, I mean, I grew up, my grandmother, especially my paternal grandmother, we always talked about dreams. We always talked about spirituality. It wasn't something secondary to life. I mean, you went to church and I had religious education, but I also went to temple. To, uh, uh, and we do have Jewish in our ancestry. And my father brought was working in India, brought home people from with the Hindu religion. Um, he worked in Iran. Um, we had pe- friends from my family and that network from all over the world. Uh, I didn't know about martial arts per se. Uh, I knew about wrestling and boxing. And one of my brothers has gone on to do a lot in boxing later in his life. When I got to Georgetown, anyway, so after the first year at Oglethorpe, 
I said to my dad and my grandparents, I said, look, uh, I'm not getting the education I need. I want to go to international. I want to go to Georgetown. And I think my father also said to me later, he wanted to know if I was serious about study because uh, I will say that sometimes my mother was the least feminist of anybody and would say, don't spend the money on the girls. And, the, and um, my sister went to Princeton, by the way, and LSE after that. <laughs> um, but uh, so they didn't want to spend the money on me, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I did get to Georgetown as a transfer student. And uh, that's when my whole world opened up in many ways. And I I would say that the the few females that were in the foreign service school at that time, I think prior to 1970, there was a quota of no more than 10% females. There could not be more than 10% females in foreign service school. When I work in other countries now, when I worked in Saudi Arabia and other places, and they go, oh, there's no way we're never going to be able to have women. I go, you know, it wasn't that long ago that in America, there were quotas against having women in sports. I, When I was in sports, I think I was one of the first, we were some of the first to run the 880, the 800 meters. Because prior to that, and I re- always ran relays. And I think it's the first time they had mile relays for for females, because prior to that, they would give all sorts of excuses like, oh, well, you know, women can't do that because uh, they have menstrual cycles or women can't do this because, you know, it wasn't true. But we were under those dictums. So in foreign service, um, there weren't that many of us. There weren't that many anyway, because foreign service is one section of Georgetown University. And And I had roommates the first years from Thailand, from Kanitschichanukrao, from Laos, uh, down the hall, from Ivory Coast, all over. And so it was all girls in those days. There was no co-ed dorms. So we would talk a lot. And thank God, in a way, there was no laptops, no movies. I think we went to the movies once or twice a year. And I, I worked in a movie theater, both in high school, the first six in one movie theater, and in college. It was one of my three jobs in college. And so you had more time to talk to people, to talk to people in their own language, to really have an idea of who they were. They're not looking at a screen texting while they're talking to you. They're talking to you. And you also had to get out of situations. You couldn't just like Google, how do I do this? You had to figure it out. Um, And that helped me a lot. So somebody said, I think it was to go see some boys, honestly, at the time. Let's go down to the gym, uh, one section of the gym. We were down there. Georgetown's known for its fantastic basketball team, and that was during the time of uh, Coach Thompson's time and Dean Peter Crow's time. And uh, we ended up going to watch uh, the judo club, which was all guys at the time. (laughs) And it was... um, Coached by a Marine. And you have to understand, this is Vietnam wartime. So they're pretty tough guys. Uh, And we were all under the pressure that our brothers, our some people's fathers, uncles, classmates uh, would be going to Vietnam or just coming back from Vietnam. So uh, he said, 
he I will say that he said, all right, girls, you know, you can try. And there was no PC in those days. You know, nobody watched their language. But I was used to teasing from my growing up in the family that I did and the time that I did. And so, you know, when he would tell you that he'd tear your lips up or, you know, he would step on your throat in just a certain way that his big toe would get your Adam's apple. I don't know. He he had amazing toes. That's all I can say. So if you dared to talk, like he would just like put that toe on and, you know, I won't say over the radio exactly what he would say to you, but um, you would never talk again in his class. <laughs> Let me put it that way. But I learned a lot. Oh, my gosh. I learned a lot um, starting then. And it's the first time I really knew about martial arts because we didn't watch TV in our family, the first three of us. Almost never. Um, so, you know, people say, oh, you see those films and those TV shows. No, maybe we saw Walt Disney on Sundays, and that was a group event. <laughs> By group event, I mean, my Aunt Gloria was living with us. Her fiancé, who was former Navy guy, uh, would be there sometimes babysitting us. My younger siblings would be there watching a show with a lot of people, it's not quite the same. I mean, you know, there's a lot going on. And so it, it, it's not like now in that sense. So, yeah, I, I worked hard. I was on a partial scholarship because of being on the debate team, which had a lot of demands. Um, that was during the Unger days. I was the first and the only female on the debate team. And they were, and, you know, debate team they were pretty merciless in terms of uh teasing as well but um i was used to that and i also had to travel everywhere because the debate contests were in different parts of the united states georgetown and harvard were the pretty much vying for number one all the time um so we were up in new york uh, for events, sometimes through the Model United Nations, at the Real United Nations as well, and uh, in Boston for Harvard matches. A lot of them came down to D.C. That was the benefit of the Foreign Service School. You were in Washington, so you could be right there where the embassies are, not very far from the Pentagon, not very far from lots of uh, political action going on. And in those days... Uh, we were invited to parties. I mean, there weren't very many females. And I didn't realize it at the time. You know, it's like, oh, wow, we get to go to this party. And then, you know, they put you sit, they sit you right in front of Henry Kissinger, for example, at one time. And um, you're going, well, no, I'd really, I'm, I'd really prefer to be in the back. And they, no, no, you're sitting in the front. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. So, uh, that's how I got to be on the judo team and the philodemic society, the debating team and student government and worked three jobs and finished in two and a half years because we didn't have enough money. I mean, the others were coming up. I had my brother that was uh, closest to me. He went to Auburn university and then he was a uh, ROTC and then he was in the Marine Corps Um I always let my own siblings tell their own stories, so I won't tell too much about that. But we had a very competitive family all around in terms of you have to do better than you think you can do. You have to do as well as we think you can do. And I would say that Georgetown fostered that. At the time I was there, 
it was fantastic in terms of uh, rigor of academics and rigor in sports, rigor in the teams I was on. And then I was selected for special programs during that time. So while you were going through this, ultimately, what was your career aspiration? Originally, I wanted to be a human rights commissioner. Um, but I will say that once I really started seeing what the Foreign Service was and what the United Nations was for more from the inside, uh, I realized shortly, you have to remember, this is during the time after the Kennedy assassination when Sergeant Shriver is running the Peace Corps. Um, and most of my classmates had switched from wanting to be in the Foreign Service to be in the Peace Corps because it was during the Vietnam War. Uh, so I wanted to do something in the humanitarian realm. Shortly after I got there, I realized I didn't want to be in the political realm. And I will say also throughout those years and the years after, I realized I wanted to work in a lot of the projects, but I did not want to become a government employee. I just saw the inside of too much of what happens. It's very hard to resist certain cultures there. And if you have the different set of ethics and integrity, you, you may not be able to stay there. So I know your journey took you into a lot of Aboriginal and you know, Native American um, groups. So kind of walk me through that, Australia, New Zealand, and then some of the American tribes that you started working with. I'll, I'll say this with uh, Chief Archie Firelander, or Lexi Archie Firelander, one of my Sundance leaders, said a long time ago, most of the people that come from Europe come from tribal culture. They just don't know it because they don't know their ancestry. And I would say, uh, whether it's the Celtic or the, I mean, there's different kinds of tribes, of course, still in the Middle East and Africa, but in Italy itself, you know, the Sardinians very different from the Sicilians, different parts of Sicily. So even in my or I, I wouldn't say even, my Italian culture, especially from my paternal side, was very much grounded in um, Christian and Judeo-Christian precepts, but part of the mystery of life, of what dreams mean, of talking to your ancestors, that's the best way I can put it, um, of understanding there's a mystical to life, of reading people like Thomas Aquinas or even poets like William Blake and realizing there's a whole aspect of mystery in literature and in theological literature. We had to study a lot of theological literature in at Georgetown. My concentration was the Middle East, so and and in different languages. So um, that was part of it, but it never was separate. Thank goodness for my grandparents, it was never separate. It was never like, well, this is this part of life and this is another part of life. It always went together. And so part of what we were always, I suppose, uh, inculcated with, both in my family and at Georgetown at the time was, you have these gifts from God, whatever you call God, whether you call God 
Oh, mon Dieu, ou Tankasha, la Teariki Nui, or Allah, or Seigneur, you know, the divine, you have these gifts. And what are you going to do with these gifts? Because you are unique in that you have been given these unique gifts. You can't just not use them, right? But to what purpose are you going to use these gifts? And uh, the American, uh, a lot of people probably have preconceived ideas about this group because of the media, but the American Indian movement was very strong in the early 70s, and they were in Washington and in New York uh, for protests, not just protests against the Vietnam War, for protests about what was happening on the reservations there. And I also was working, one of my jobs at one point was working with Jack Anderson, uh, the columnist, Jack Anderson, who broke the Watergate story and um, Les Witten. And Les Witten was working with the uh, American Indian Movement in Washington, D.C. And I was, uh, shortly after Georgetown, I was, uh, one of my jobs was as an investigative reporter for Jack Anderson and Les Witten. I, I was given so much responsibility in those days. It sort of was the attitude of, if you can do it, we'll let you do it. There didn't have to be a lot of hoops you had to jump through or I don't know I think it's a lot more difficult now for younger people to get in and get the kind of experience that that a lot of us had especially in the 70s and the 80s and you you also on the other hand you know a lot of people gave you that because they didn't worry that you were going to bring a lawsuit against them for uh, sexual harassment or saying the wrong pronoun or you know you got a lot of latitude both ways so I part of it was uh, in working with some of the trials that were coming up. Um, that was part of it. But it was more, and I'm not sure, you, some of your audience will understand this. I had a dream since I was 10 years old that I didn't know what it was. I describe it in my book, Traveling Off the X. And so I won a fellowship when I was 20 years old through uh, Georgetown University hosted it, but it was through the Circumnavigators Club, who are some very high power individuals. And I was the first girl to win that scholarship. Um, I was supposed to go around the world, but it was 1973 and uh, a number of things happened and they decided it wasn't safe for me to go around the world. So they chose a boy, a male at the same time. It's the first year that they had two. And they had me change my project. Anyway, this is a, a lot what's written in my book, Traveling Off the X. And I was dropped, literally sort of dropped behind the Iron Curtain. No cell phones, no anything like that. Yeah, at 20 years old. Um, I followed my guidance and my instincts a lot of times in life that had been honed by actual exercises. Um, I read a lot of the Brown books and things like that growing up about tracking and I will say that my maternal grandfather would always say in his very heavy Italian accent, as we'd go look for uh, Indian head arrows in Connecticut, he would say, always respecta the red man. And um, so I did. I respected the red man, as he called him. And uh, I, just how things happen, I, I would meet people who were working uh, against what the government 
Bureau of Indian Affairs still exists, I believe, in, under the Department of Interior, um, and hear them speaking and talking to them, and then uh, a combination of that and this dream I'd had about going to Australia. I didn't know what it was Australia at the time since I was 10, and then another dream about being in a circle. So that's a very short answer to what I talk about a fair amount in my book about how when I did not follow those signs about what I was supposed to do, my life became much more difficult. And when I did follow what I thought was the more difficult path, uh, things became clearer as to what I was to do in life. And uh, it wasn't me necessarily... In fact, most of the time, hard to believe now, people would say, <laughs> but I was actually pretty shy and I didn't want to go forward and people would push me forward. And they say, no, you're the one who's supposed to do this, even in my family, because I had the palest skin and I had blue eyes. And so, as my relative told me, you can, you can be the bridge between the Anglos because you can go in that society. We can't. The rest of them are a lot darker in skin, hair color, you know. The swarthy Italians, Southern Italians. So, um, yeah, I people would come forward to me and say, "Would you please do this for us?" Or I used my my academic skills in researching for people who had been stolen. Um, they tested me. There's different kinds of tests, you know. There's there's different kinds of tests in that world to determine whether or not you have the aptitude for doing certain things. And what earlier in my life I'd been denigrated for, uh, oh, you know, that's just your imagination or da-da-da. I finally found my ilk of people who go, no, no, you just see different worlds. You see like us. That's a short answer. So all the traveling that I've done, um, it would appear that there's a kind of difference in a lot of the the areas that a lot of the, the native people live depending on the kind of relationship and, and the, the occupation. So I'll give you a perfect example. When I went to visit the outback in Australia and went to Ayers Rock, not only were there no Aboriginal men or women there at the, the Welcome Center to educate you on their culture, the you know climbing Ayers Rock at that time was sacrilege to the Aboriginal people, and yet you were allowed to do it as a tourist. So I refused to do it. I ended up just going to walking around the rock and spending some time in the desert there. But it's you know it it seemed to to be I would I would assume a poor example of how to integrate you know with um, the European settlers and have that overall kind of mixed experience. When I look at New Zealand. And again, I might be completely naive, but it seemed like because of the the ferocity of a lot of the Maori people when the British first went to that particular island, there were a lot more put in place to protect the Maori people and their rights, probably because the British wouldn't be able to beat them because they were so damn big. But yes. it, to me, that was a very contrasting native experience between those two. With these tribes that you've worked with, and I've also heard now, you know, since doing this podcast, people that work on reservations as law enforcement officers, firefighters, and some of the, the, the addiction, the poverty that exists within this affluent nation that we live in. So what, are, what would you consider some of the, the less known facts about some of these indigenous men and women and some of the, the conditions that they're living in? Well, first I'll say, just like if I was to ask you, what are the British like? 
you could give a generalized answer that would include some stereotypes that are actually true for many of them, right? Because stereotypes are often have some truth to them. But you know better than I probably, you know, on the island of Britain itself, we're not even talking about Scotland or Ireland, there's just many, many different subcultures. So you could make a generalization about indigenous people, but it would only be that, a generalization. And uh, each is so different. The Maori are so different than the average, and of the Aboriginal tribes, most people don't realize that before the British came over, there were over 300. I have a map I often show people of all the different Gumbangi, Bunjalag, Dungathi that I worked on on the East Coast, worked with, lived with, have Aboriginal family there. That's just a very small portion of what really was on that whole continent, that whole island continent before the British came. So there were different rules and different landscapes, different languages entirely, as different as French is to Danish. And the same with quote-unquote Native American, which really is not, you know, it depends where you are. There's different PC about what you call, and that's changed a lot since the 70s even. So you also have North American tribes. And when I, I was a Sunday, oh, never really not are anymore, but I mean, I was a Sundancer, we Wayang Wachipi with the, for many years with the Lakota and then asked to be with the Menominee in Wisconsin uh, for four years. And um, they also, even within, have different languages, different food, different landscape. But I will say that there is a commonality, just like all human beings have a commonality. We all have blue blood and it is blue, by the way, until it hits the air. That's where that expression comes from, I suppose, um, under our skin. And if you are born fairly normally, you're going to have your teeth changed sometime between six and nine years old. You're going to have puberty sometime between nine and 16. You're going to be fully an adult with all your vanicanamo neurons and everything intact. For females, sometime between 21 and 23, and males, sometime between 21 and 25, we know now. But past that, there's just lots of differences. And so um, I would say it's a kind of a, a destiny, or you could say my task, in different places where um, many times I did not actually want to use my skills or felt my skills were not uh, either appropriate or strong enough. And I luckily had enough elders in my life over my lifetime so far, not dead yet, um, that would come and say, no, we see that you can do that. Even in, in when I was training with the Shaolin in 2018, 2019, winter training, I didn't think I could do it. I was healing from a lot of injuries. And they said, do you trust us? You know, we've been, they've been doing this for 3,000 years more. Same with the Aboriginals. We're talking about more than 10,000 years. Same with many of what's called Native American tribes, North American tribes from what the area now called Canada, or I was up in Alaska just recently working. You know, there are thousands of years of successful working and living. And so are you going to say to them, uh, 
I'm not going to trust you about what you're going to tell me about this landscape? Or are you not going to trust your master that's teaching you in, in martial arts? If they say you can do something and you, you, it's, it's your mindset most of the time or societal's mindset that says, no, you can't do that. Earlier on in my life, you can't do that. You're a girl. Early, now in my life, you can't do that. You're too old. You know, or are you going to trust them who have had training for handed down from thousands of years and go, okay, I'm going to open my mind. And yes, as one of my Aboriginal elders early on said, if you can't understand that we can go to the moon and back without a rocket ship and get this communication, then just get out of the room right now. It's not worth talking to you. Now, some people will not understand this conversation and just think I'm crazy. Witko, go ahead. I'm at my stage in life now. I've seen enough, experienced enough. I'm telling you my own personal firsthand experience. So the point I was trying to make, though, was, and we touched on that in our conversation before, there are, you know, some atrocities that have been committed toward these these tribes and again we're talking global so i know like you said i'm generalizing with the word tribe in itself but um and then you know to this day there i think one of the kind of misnomers is oh you know people that are native american are lucky if they can prove they've got x amount then they get all this money and yet you hear from people on reservations in some areas that you know like i said are working in law enforcement that are telling me no there's there's some some horrendous poverty and they have a terrible addiction crisis there at the moment so what are some of the you know the things that you're seeing behind the curtain that kind of go against the the more disnified version that a lot of people probably think you know especially in in America and Canada native american culture actually looks like well <clears throat> i'm going to preface this by also pointing out as one of the maori elders pointed out everything that is talked about as the negative that does happen yes it also happens in the main society, too. Drug addiction is in the main society at all levels, as we know, all social areas, right? Incest, family violence, uh, maybe not the kind of family violence that is out in the street yelling, and you know, but all sorts of different kinds of family violence happens at all economic strata in society, too. Um, they're under a microscopic scope because they've been reduced, especially in the United States, from being 100% of the population of the continent of North America to being less than 3%. And it's also very easy in, in some ways to say everything's in the past. Oh, didn't they have a glorious past? Implying that they don't have a glorious future, which isn't true. Is it hard? Yes. But uh, I think also for those who've been in the military, and by the way, quote unquote, Native Americans or people of that ancestry have the highest percentage participating in all branches of the U.S. military than any other racial ethnic group by far. I think it's up to 11 or 12 percent, where the rest is two or three percent max. And some of them, you know, will go in other countries like Afghanistan recently and Iraq and Bosnia and other places, Africa, Central America, and realize, <laughs> yes, we have it hard in comparison to, let's say, other areas of the United States. But in compared, if you look in a global way, no, we don't. 
So again, it's a bit of a mindset. And I, I know that in, in, at least in Lakota education, because I worked with Barbara Means Adams and I worked with her on the first white Buffalo calf conference held in Rapid City back in 1997. Uh, after I was released from being unjustly imprisoned, I might add, uh, as uh, a number of people said, you're not worth your salt in the humanities in those days if you didn't go to prison at least a few times or jail. Um, so working on that with them, and I was only non-Lakota working there. Again, I, I really didn't think I should be there, but both she and at the time... Um, uh, well, there were a number of people there at the time <clears throat> that said, no, we, we we really could use your skills looking at this curriculum. And we also, you know, I was a Sundancer at that time too. We also need somebody who can be the bridge for having us be able to write this curriculum so that can be um, identified as legitimate by the public school system, for example, and do it with the way they need to have it written in order to fill those requirements for public schools and public funding. So, um, and there are government policies imposed from people who are not familiar or haven't grown up or aren't in the family on those reservations or those nations. Um, they're making decisions for them and they don't know what it's about. And that's the problem that's in Australia, in, uh, I mean, my most familiar with in Australia, in still in New Zealand, it's a little different because, you know, the Maori did defeat the British and the British had to, had to sign the Treaty of Waitangi. And uh, so, but there are younger, much younger uh, population than, than the Aboriginal as well. Um, and they, theirs is more bellicose. And New Zealand is a much smaller place than either Australia or the United States. Um, so I think, you know, the whole thing about, please, let us rule ourselves. Let us use our own rules. Let us have tribal justice. I mean, in, when I was in New Zealand and part of the, my first work with Kahurangi and the National Māori Dance Company there, and the the elders that I was privileged to be adopted by and work with, the Huatas, um, they had an uh, alternative to the legal system in a different way than the than the uh, Aboriginals in certain areas of Australia did. Certain areas of Australia, I haven't been there for a few years now, but they would have tribal justice, but you couldn't. Do both. Like if you chose tribal justice with the Pichinjara, you have to go with that Pichinjara, and that's legal. So if their punishment is uh, for a certain crime uh, that you get marked with a knife so everybody knows that you've done that, for example, you can't then go complaining to the Australian local council, oh, look what they did to me. No, you went, you went into tribal law. Once you go away from tribal law, you can't go back. It's my understanding. And it, you know, and it's the it, same when Maori, they had a different kind of juvenile uh, reconciliation restitution 
process in place that uh, that Kahurangi in a way was part of. We we hired hired we we trained and used in the performances and rehab you can say rehabilitated or came back to their culture um, using um, traditional Maori dance waiata songs and uh, the reo the 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 language and i was there because they also wanted to do some contemporary because they wanted to tour internationally and so while i was there helped them got get up to the standard that they performed at the atlanta olympics for example and uh, america's cup and so forth so um I'm sorry, I, I get on these uh, tangents, so uh, just stop me if I don't answer your question directly. But it's um, it's more complicated than just saying they don't have the same. Yeah, they don't, but it's been a long history of that. But So you have to find a way to accommodate it in within your own culture. And the problem I see from a hawk's eye view, sometimes that's why I'm invited in, because I'm not part of the family feuds or not part of a government agency that has its own agenda. They just say, what do you see? And I, I always tell people, and that's why, you know, a lot of people don't like me wanted to kill me. I've killed a lot of my colleagues is that I say, if you really want to know, I will tell you, but don't ask me if you don't want to know. And I used to get pretty attached to the advice that I was given or that I would give if they didn't take it, and that's both in diagnostics as a Chinese medical doctor, which I am, as well as as going in for education, monitoring, evaluation, assessment, and learning, for example, is if you called me in here and you paid me the money, or sometimes didn't pay me, um, you know, I will spend the time and do the detailed work and, and give you an assessment. On the other hand, if you don't follow what I suggest in order to remedy this, then don't come back to me later saying, well, you know, it doesn't work. It's just like on a simple level, I treat people who chew tobacco, right, and have all sorts of digestive problems and so forth. I, quote, unquote, cure them. They don't have that anymore. I've given them the herbs, the acupuncture, so forth, right? And they feel good. And then what do they do? They start chewing again, and then they get the same symptoms again and then they come back and they go I don't know why really you don't know why let me let me ask you a few questions here about your habits you know um could you actually stop this yourself if you stop chewing yes i could okay you know so um it's the same in some ways that i see is that this there russell means for example there's many um you know, they're controversial, but they had some really excellent, effective, practical plans that they put on on a small level. And then other people jeopardized those plans, diminished those plans, sabotaged those plans, and even killed the people that would implement anything that would go away from the other people that were, that were like parasites living off the quote-unquote poor, backward I'll use the word that they used in those days, savage people. So you work with all you know, these incredible you know, tribes and communities as you were in your adult life. Before that, you traveled and you had this multi-generational um, international family as well. And you had to kind of um, learn how to integrate with all these different cultures as you traveled. 
walk me through how you ended up working in the kind of crisis arena and and developing resilience when it came to the military contracts that you had. Ah, uh, here's where my NDAs might come in a little, non-disclosure agreements. When I was in my 20s, and I talk about it in the book, and I push the book in this sense because we don't have enough time to talk about it in the detail it requires to really understand all the context. But I do as much as I was able to with my confidentiality and non-disclosure agreements, say as much as I can. Early on in my life, I was chosen. I, mean, I can look back now because I've worked in programs where I have to be the one who, who makes an assessment. So I know how it works now, but you, I didn't at the time. Um, so I was in special projects, uh, programs. You can read about that in my book. I won't talk about it on the air at the moment. Um, when I was in my 20s. What I saw there and some, I guess you can say even like a spiritual experiences that made me realize this was not ethical work. Uh, it seemed to be ethical work, but it really wasn't. Um, I decided to completely go the other way. Didn't my family really never understood. I mean, members, certain members of my family never really understood. Um, but some of my colleagues at university who were also in special programs or worked high in the government, um, Valerie Mather Wainwright, who was my good friend at Oglethorpe, and then she went on to University of Texas, and then she worked for Ronald Reagan in the White House, and she was Carl Rove's first wife. And we were very close. And I told, you know, we we talked a lot earlier on, other people. Um, I decided I was, you know, part of my family was for me going ahead and going into the performing arts full time as a professional. Because I'd started dancing when I was three and I played music and I, um, I really wanted to do that. I wrote, I already wrote at that time. I was already published in poetry and short stories and had written a couple of plays. Uh, and in order to do that, I knew I had to retrain my body. And I also had to go for the best of the training that I thought I could get into, which for me was Circle in the Square in New York City. And I did get in. I talk about that. I talk about the training there. And I changed my life. I wasn't going to ever go back to, that's what I thought. I'm never going back to all these different organizations and parts of the government and all the, I'll use the Yiddish word here, all the mishigas they get into. And I saw some of my friends go into it. Some of them leave after a few years because they couldn't take it. And some of them change and not for the better, most of them. Also some saw some really effective people, um, but they could only be effective to a certain degree. Um, so I was not directly in that loop anymore, but I still heard from him. And always the way the world works and the way people work and how they move about, all of that always has interested me. And I'm a voracious reader. So while I was still in the performing arts, absolutely full time and in all the unions, <laughs> I was in SAG, AFTRA, most people don't know, BTA, Broadway Theater Alliance. One of the great jobs I had was working as an usher and bartender in Broadway theaters while I was training at Circle, because then you get to see live performances. 
matinees, everything. You know, you get to see these great actors and actresses and lighting people and everything. But you get to see them day after day, not just one performance or two performances. You get to see how they cope with all of that. I was a personal assistant to Jill Kremitz and Kurt Vonnegut. That was one of my jobs in New York. I was personal assistant to Nico Sakharopoulos. When you're a personal assistant, those days, it was before Google Calendar and all that. Um, yeah, you know, you had to, you got, had developed a lot of skills. You got to know a lot of people because they had to go through you. You know, Nikos was very funny. Sometimes he'd say he wanted to get Blythe Danner on the phone or something. He would he would go, uh, okay, call, call Blythe. Uh, if uh, Dick answers, hang up because she was married to Dick Cavett. <laughs> you, you know, you'd be the host at their parties and you'd meet all these people. And so I was in that life and um, did a lot of new shows by the British. Uh, yeah. So I talk about that as well, that life. And that's when uh, when I was touring. It's a long story. But when I was touring, I met, um, Marty, who um, was my husband and father of my children, and he was still in the military. He was a uh, uh, United States Air Force PJ. You have to understand that one of my brothers, the one closest to me, became a Marine as well. So um, at that time, we were pretty close. When he was going through Quantico, I was in D.C., and I would hear stories about how that was for him. And um yeah, so uh, that part of my life was very different, um, being married to a PJ who turned into a, a mountain climber, mountain guide, even more dangerous job, and having life in a very different life. Um, that was one thing we did agree on, that you know that we would be trying to live off the grid as much as possible, and we both knew pretty much some of the more nefarious agendas that were already mapped out in the 80s about what was going to happen in the United States. And we we knew we wanted to raise our children outside the United States. So um, that's another long answer to your question. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I was look went through a horrible, horrible divorce. I won't even talk about it. It's just too boring. But it was terrible on the children. And uh, dead be dead and a lot of stuff happened. And I, we were in New Zealand. And again, that's where your old connections come in. Somebody from Georgetown contacted me and said, we're starting this new program. This is before, just before I did the military training. I worked for, I still work for them. So I'm going to be careful here. Um, uh, I still work as a specialist. Uh, for a program called the Center for Intercultural Education and Development. I've worked with them since 2008. Um, so, uh, and I talk about those first assignments in, in my book. And then, oh, what happened? Oh, I was in Pakistan in 2010 and 11. That's, uh, I mostly, mostly worked in um medical universities, specialty in training um, for medical English. And then somebody else contacted me 
and said, they're starting this new program called the Human Terrain System, and we think you would be perfect for it with the U.S. Army, but you'd have to go back through training and da-da-da. And at the time, when I first heard about it, it sounded quite, to me, a blend of everything that I'd sort of done up until that point, but also because it was so dangerous doing many of the things that I had done and, and had a number of colleagues killed and, as they say, seriously harmed, by the way, um, th through the program I was at. I think they've changed a little bit of their the way they do things now. But, um, yeah, the, the CIED person, Josh, before me, was killed in Armenia, stabbed to death, um, the person in Russia, they had sent an African-American woman to Siberia before me. She was harmed very seriously. Um, the woman in Pakistan, redhead, green eyes, I talk a little bit in the book, also very seriously harmed, sent to the Swat Valley. Um, you know, yeah, so I thought, oh, this sounds much better. You have... <laughs> You have the military, you'll have more training about this. I mean, we had some training about carjackings and some other things from mostly given by Save the Children when we were in our Washington, and we were trained in Washington, D.C. before we'd go out to these places. So uh, I said, yes, all right. And, of course, there was a whole selection process, which I can't really go into. and. Um, I passed it, and I think I've gone through that program more than anyone else. That's all I'll say, <laughs> because of various things. Um, because of sequestration, I don't know if you know what that, if you were here when they did that, where they would start programs and then stop the funding, and then everything would stop, and then, then it would start up again, but often it was a new contractor. Um, so I, that happened to me. And, uh, yeah, so that's how I got reinvolved, retrained, recertified through the U.S. Army, but through as a contractor, as a DAC, Department of Army Civilian and a contractor later on. Well, we talked before we start recording about resilience. So before I kind of close out this conversation, I'd love to get your thoughts. You know, again, I mean, it's such a storied timeline and you know you've just picked out little tiny pieces from from your journey so far but when it comes to resilience itself what are the takeaways that you've got now where you stand i would say what's been said by many people for thousands of years if you can find a purpose higher than yourself that will significantly help and um Everyone is different in terms of how that appeals to you. I don't know how people manage who don't have some belief in some higher power. I think that would be very, very difficult. Um, for me, and for those who don't know who I am, um, yes, my son and his father were killed on K2 in Pakistan in 2013. And a number of my close teammates were killed um, in Afghanistan. And I, I'm a specialty in education and emergencies, for example. Um, I was just in Alaska in the remote villages during uh, the worst of the pandemic times. 
And having a, a great belief in the divine helps me. Having those rules set up by God, I mean, even if you don't believe in the Ten Commandments, that you do not murder, that you do not lie, that you do not steal. We're all human beings, and every day we have a different chance that we're alive to try and have a day when you don't do those things. Um, and also that grief takes much more time and in, comes in different ways than the movies or the films. And so to be able to honor the fact that somebody else can have, get over something in one or two years and somebody else may never get over it. When they say go back to normal, I don't think you ever go back to normal, especially if you lose a child. You know, you 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 cope with it and you continue with it, but life is not going to be the same. And if you expect it's going to be the same, sometimes that can cause you even more grief. And taking care of yourself. Um, fortunately, I was never a drug addict. I can see how people could be. I really, I mean, I've, I treated lots of people with addictions, so I understand how that can happen. But you have a new chance every day. Um, I do think it helps if you have support from people who know what it's about. And I've gone to support groups, survivors of violence groups. I've had a lot of violence perpetrated on me over the years in my work and other places. Um, very often, it's the other people in the group that end up being the ones that will be the helps because they've actually been through it. There's a lot of very well-meaning psychologists and psychiatrists who who think they know, and they may ask the right questions, which helps a lot. But it's usually the people themselves there, if they're on, if they can be honest and not be worried about confidentiality or people recording them, that you can really get through it with them because they know what it is, and they can. They can also tell you, look, that's pretty normal for this. Oh, the society will say, that's not normal, take a drug. Da -da. But this is pretty normal. This is what happens. The Chinese and other people in, in different medical professions have written about it. They call it hungry ghost walking, hungry ghost talking. There, there, there is. It's just not known mostly in Western societies. The Shaolin know about it. The Lakota know about it. What happens with warriors? amazingly common from thousands of years before. If you don't do certain things, this will happen to you. Um, you've, you've got to find your means of expression. For some people, it's, I still dance at home, even though I don't dance on stage anymore. I still play music when I can. Certain kinds of music, I know now, well, what they call now, trigger. So I try and stay away from that unless I'm in a, I don't have to worry about time. You know, you have to know yourself and nobody else can really do it for you. Um, and no drug, I believe, can ever do it for you. Um, but the one size fits all, in my opinion, never works. It has to be, you, it's going to take time. It's going to take whoever's your practitioner. It's going to take time with them and you've got to find somebody uh, it doesn't have to be a formal practitioner. Some of the best healers are not credentialed in any way, whether they're Native American, Aboriginal, or just a Jewish grandmother, for example. You know, I mean, you. but you have to find somebody that you trust that works with you. And 
that's you know not always easy these days, especially with all the restrictions that have happened in the last couple of years. Absolutely. Well, I mean, you've led us through some bullet points of some amazing kind of chapters in your life. You refer to the book. So the book is Traveling Off the X. Uh, you also have Clash and Kismet as well. But tell me where you can find those books and then also where the best places online to find other areas of your work and social media as well. Thank you. Um, I will say my daughter, Sequoia, has taught me a lot about certain things in publishing. And my publisher defines Press of Texas, who is an independent publisher, published Traveling Off the X. You can find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. It's on Kindle. It's on Audible. I don't read it. I got another professional actress. I like to have money for professional actresses these days. Um, and she's a Brit, and she does a really good job, I think. I did my own book for my second poetry book, Clash. My daughter's company does Kismet, the first one. And uh, I learned a lot from self-publishing. And I think I'm the second poetry book I'm doing on my own as well. I was wondering, if you wouldn't mind, if I could just read a short one, just so people know I'm not so serious and everything. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> okay, so... Um, one of the things, it's not a PC one. I hope that's okay with you. That's yeah, fine. We're not here to protect feelings on the show. <laughs> We're trying to, trying to solve um, problems. That's the thing. So uh, I thought that I would read What to Do in a Bunker. This is from Clash. And uh, why I like poetry is, this, people say, is this based on a real situation? Yes, it is, but it's you can... You add things, right? You Time is not the same in a poem necessarily. It's, it's not like writing a first-person narrative. So this did take place in Afghanistan on Hkaya. What to Do in a Bunker by Joe Patty. A familiar, sensual, liquid voice announced over the air, Surface-to-air missiles, mortars, rockets fired, saying, Incoming, incoming, take shelter, take shelter. Thud! The building shuddered. We looked to the ceiling, to the door, continued training. The sultry female British voice declared another, Incoming, take shelter, take shelter. Whistling, then crack! Pounding, smash, this was too close. Afghan military students spring up, run to their places to hide, leaving us to the mercy of our own God. Grabbed my helmet, backpack, followed the designated leader who had no idea where we were supposed to go. Our American guards were new. They didn't know where we were supposed to go, but they had the guns and the comms. Take shelter, take shelter, incoming incoming. We quick march, quick march outside to the sound of shattering glass, concrete blasting open, crouching down in a large concrete cement pipe, a culvert we call a bunker. It is slimy, cold, open at both ends. Half the team are without helmets, forgot their gear, remembered their cigarettes. The girl beside me takes out her spy phone. She cusses as she scrolls furiously. I call the project manager on my little flip phone. He's on the NATO base taking a nap. Stay put for a few hours, he says from the other side. He's not in harm's way. Incoming, incoming, 
take the ground shakes, shakes beneath us, our American guards scout another location, no joy. There was no other bunker. We hunker down to the sound continuing, incoming, incoming, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. The ordinance is relentless. Where's the plan? What's the plan? How long do we stay? She's shaking. She can't stop asking questions. She keeps going on. There are no answers. The guards fall in with us, we who are leaderless. This girl is anxious, restless. She's squirming, scrolling, whimpering. Incoming, incoming, take shelter, take shelter, take, I whispered her, what are you doing? I'm searching, I'm searching Google for what to do, she explains. What are we supposed to do in a bunker? She's panicking, rocking back and forth. I can't get a signal, she says. I don't know what to do. The central soldiers and the sentries hear us. They state their instructions clearly. Shut the fuck up and wait. That's what you do in a bunker. Love it. Especially the last bit. <laughs> Simplicity. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and the and the paintings in the book are from my son Denali Schmidt. I put those in there as well. Beautiful. And Denali has a book as well, the the Zen and the Art of Skiing. So I want to make sure people knew about that too. Yes, Zen and the Art of Skiing is a three-generational, we're having a little bit of controversy about this at the moment. Um, my son wrote it as part of his senior year project at the Taikura Hastings Steiner School in New Zealand. Um, he studied, I, I introduced him to a master, helped him with meditation so he could do backflips and all sorts of amazing skiing things, which he did. And... Uh, my mother, who was an editor, book editor, she edited it. And then my daughter's company, D'Angelo Publications, is published, has published it and is publishing it in both hardback and print form. Beautiful. Well, Joe, it's been such a, a unique conversation. Like I said, we, we've just kind of picked at your timeline a little bit, but... I know there were some areas that you couldn't talk and some areas that people will find in the book. But I just want to thank you so much for a, a, a very unique perspective that you brought to the show today. So thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. Likewise, James, thank you for having me on and for asking the questions that needed to be asked. Not of me, but of many people too, not just of me. Mm -hmm.